Hallelujah, Jesus, we praise you. Father, we thank you so much. We cannot thank you enough, Father, for all that you have given. And we thank you, Jesus, for this time of communion. We thank you, Jesus, for this time of reflecting on everything that you gave. And we worship you and we give you praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Is God good or is God good? Amen. Well, you can be seated and we're going to bring up the lights. And this morning, I just want to introduce to you a very special um, speaker. You've probably noticed if you've been coming uh, to the fountain for any length of time that will just casually throw throw out this term reset um, on a regular basis. And the reason why is because we have come into a real partnership with Carissa and Jeff Ratterstorp, and they are two incredible people, and they run a ministry called Reset Ministries, uh, which consists of uh, twice-a-year retreats, as well as these uh, 10-week-long uh, groups that they do, where they're doing discipleship and and just getting to the bottom of what, what keeps us bound, and people are finding freedom in their ministry on a regular basis, and it was about uh, a year ago that we took basically our entire church to the retreat and it was incredible so many people experienced so many breakthroughs and we are so grateful this morning uh, for our partnership with uh, Jeff and Carissa can we just give a hand clap to them to thank them and and I just want to invite Jeff to come up at this time and Jeff I asked uh, for him to speak Um, probably a couple months ago on this day, and he thought I wasn't going to be here, so he thought he was just covering for me, but that's just how much I honor and respect this man and believe that he's got a word from God that this church needs to hear today. It's going to be a timely word, and so Jeff, thank you so much for being here today and for coming to bring the word to us. We welcome you. Let's give him another hand clap as he comes. Thank you, Pastor Joe. All right, so Carissa and I uh, met Pastor Joe and Jason first, I think like at the very, very start of, of last summer, and something that I noticed right off the bat is um, how hardworking that they are for this church. Um, I, I don't think I've met a pastor that works as hard for his church, and this includes Jason as well for his church. So, and Joe, Joe, I know it sounds cliche and really, really easy to say, but he loves the church, and like any good love story, his relationship with this church is long, and it's had its ups and its downs. And like any good love story, he's been faithful in the highs, and he's been faithful in the lows. He loves you guys, and he works hard for you. And you probably don't know, but he wasn't intending on leading worship today. He got a text at 5 a.m., because disaster had struck. So he just came in early and then, boom, busted out a worship set. So if, if you guys want to give it up for your pastor again. All right. Um, so in, in all the places that I've preached, no one has ever accused me of being long-winded. If we get to the end of the sermon and you want more preaching, I suppose I could just preach it again from the top. If you really, really want. Um, but we're going we're gonna to start in the Old Testament, we're going to move to the New Testament, and we're going to end in Narnia, because why not end in Narnia? 
Um, a little bit about, about me. Um, I'm, I, I'm a teacher and, and a painter, abstractly. Um, I'm a teacher by vocation. It's my day job. It's my vocation in the kingdom as well. When I preach the gospel, that's just how it comes out, okay? I can exhort and call to action. I can encourage, but my comfort zone and where God puts me is, is, a, is a teacher and a former of people's spiritual lives. That's what I inflict on our reset people a couple times a week, every single week. So the teaching for me is just kind of a mechanism to paint a bigger picture. And once this sermon starts, it's going to go fast. I'm giving you a heads up. So you got to stay with me because everything we do is painting a small piece of a much bigger portrait. And you're not, I'm not going to give you the overarching idea for this thing. It's going to open up as we move through it. Shall we? Okay. So our first table talk, and we'll close with a table talk as well. Um, I was remiss in sending the prompts early, so I'll tell you the prompts when the time comes for our closing table talk. And just heads up, word on the street is, while you're doing your closing table talk, there are cupcakes around here somewhere, and, uh, and Esther's going to talk to you as well. So with the closing table talks, maybe we could keep it to maybe 10 minutes. Out of respect for Esther, and also out of respect for cupcakes. So, <laughs> so here we go. Table talk, three wells in the Old Testament, Genesis 24, verses 42 to 54, Jacob, Genesis 29, 1 through 20, and Moses, Exodus 2, verses 11 through 22. I want you guys to take 10 minutes. It's a few minutes more than normal. Um, But again, the sermon is going to be very short. And one or two people, depending on your table size, one or two people read each one of these stories, and then you have to be able to retell the story to the people at your table in like 30 seconds. You can take 35 seconds if, if you need, or 40, but no matter what, we want everybody to hear all three of these stories in 10 minutes, starting now. Did you all make it? Hey. I'm hearing only yeses. Okay, everyone. Um, my, my hope for, for the next few minutes here um, is that you'll see old things in a new light, and you'll see something new that you never saw before. You know, like Jesus, after he finished teaching the disciples, said, you understand these things? They said, yeah. And he said, good. Then you're like scribes of the kingdom of heaven who pull out of their treasure chests new things and old things. And that's my hope for you guys, that you'll see old things brand new, and you'll see brand new things that you've never seen before. All right, so there should be some questions like, what? This is 3,000 years ago on the other side of the world, and there's a whole lot of culture behind the pages that we just missed because we're 3,000 years later on the other side of the world. We're going to unpack some of these things, but you have to understand It's not just information. This is one piece of that bigger picture, okay? So check this out. So when it comes to Abraham's servant and Rebecca, she's obviously beyond hospitable to this stranger. She gives him the drinks that he asks for, and that's all she really has to do. But she waters his camels too, possibly moved by God because that was Abraham's servant's earlier request. Like, let the woman who does this be the woman so that I know she's the one for my master's son. But check it out. There are at least three camels here. I know it's not in English, but 
It's a masculine plural ending in Hebrew grammar, and we can geek out on that after the sermon if you really, really want to. But I can tell you for certain there are at least three camels. And did you know that if camels have not drunk for multiple days, they can down 25 gallons in one sitting? So put yourself in Rebecca's shoes. How long do you think that's going to take you to bring up bucket after bucket and then walk it to the camels? But if I'm Rebecca, I'm like, no, camels, you're coming here to the well. I'm not, I'm not drawing this stuff up and then walking over to you. But she's going to be at it for the whole rest of the day, watering at least three camels if it's been several days of a journey and they haven't drunk. And she probably knows what she's getting into. She probably knows... That's a likely possibility. She goes out of her way. Why? Well, it characterizes her. She's a pretty good woman of God. What happens a few chapters later is another story, but eh. (laughs) for those of you who know the story, okay. So another thing, what's up with the nose ring, the bracelets, the gold and silver jewelry, and the clothing? It's all down payment. But no, Rebecca is not being purchased like an item or like chattel. It's a cultural thing. Rebecca provides income for her family. And if Abraham is going to bring her into his family, then that means Laban's family is losing income. It's all hands on deck in those days. So it's a down payment on a much bigger bride price that Abraham will have to pony up for. And Rebecca's father is also going to give her something called a dowry. It's not land. It's not livestock. But it is something, probably clothing, probably jewelry, so that, just in case it doesn't work out with Isaac, if he leaves her, if he divorces her, if he dies, she's not left penniless and divorced. It's taking care of her. So basically, it's a matter of economics. Abraham's family is taking care of Rebecca's family. Rebecca's family is taking care of Rebecca. But I don't know if anyone was brave enough to mention this at tables these days. What's up with consent here? What's up with consents? Okay, lost behind the pages. It's a cultural thing. She would have had the right to say no. And if you're hearing the story 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, you understand that because that cultural value is still alive. We miss it now because we're 3,000 years on the other side of the world. So she can say no. It's not her best option. If she's not interested in this stranger who appears to be wealthy and appears to be a good fit for her family, if she's not interested, she has the right to negotiate some things. And she might very well exercise that right. And just side note, her status in Isaac's family isn't actually solidified until she can bear children, until she does actually bear children. Hence the dowry from her father and all that stuff. So then we move on to Jacob and Rachel. And remember, all of this, you guys, is just part of a much bigger portrait here. Remember all this stuff, because then we're going to go somewhere in the New Testament that, has, that flips all this upside down in God's ironic way. So Jacob meets Rachel at a well. It's like God's like, hey, you come to the well, hook you up, bring your thirsty animals, all that stuff. Uh, this is, Jacob is the son of Rebekah. But what a difference a few chapters make. When we see Rebekah, she's taking advantage of her husband who might be on his deathbed and is going blind, and she comes up with a scheme to get her other son, and Francine loves it when I talk about this part. No, she doesn't. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not Team Jacob, guys. I'm sorry. I just, for part of his life, he's just a big old turd, you know? Like, he grows up, but when Joseph is a young turd, you see where he gets it from, okay? But in God's way of doing things, Joseph succeeds where his father failed. And Joseph turns out to be a lot more honest than his father was. Oh, thank you, sir. 
Kind of like when, when in Matthew, Jesus has to flee to Egypt and then come back and he's like retracing the steps of his ancestors and he's laying his perfect track record over their faltered track record. I think Autumn mentioned something about this, the God of our past, the God who loves our past and wants to restore our past. It's kind of like God knows that Jacob and, I'm sorry, mama's boy, Jacob, and, and his mama, Rebecca, made a mistake, but God is going to make up for it uh, through, jo- through Joseph. But anyways, uh, so Jacob meets Rachel at the well. He drops a big fat kiss on her, you know, he waters her sheep, kind of like his mom watered the servant's sheep. There's a pattern emerging here. You getting it? Okay. Then we got Moses and Zipporah. Moses defends Zipporah and her sisters who are mistreated by some male shepherds. And then guess what he did next? Throw it out there. He watered the flies. Funny, huh? This just keeps going up. Oh, it must be important. Okay. So now I want you to step in the shoes of someone 2,000 years ago. Okay. You are a Jewish person. This is your heritage. This is your faith. And you started going to this house where two or three or six or seven or 10 or 15 people meet. And um, they sing some songs. They take this strange meal that they call the Eucharist. It means I give thanks. And um, they grow together. Someone teaches. They pray for each other. The Holy Spirit of God that you've heard about works through them, heals people, prophesies, does signs and wonders. And these people, by the time your time comes around, have recently been called Christians, okay? You know the well stories because of your upbringing. You know about Moses and Zipporah, Jacob, and you know the works. You know how it goes. But now imagine someone is reading a gospel, which is the good news of Jesus, and you've never heard it before. And this person has read chapters 1 and 2 and 3. Never heard this before. You know the well stories. Here's what you're picking up. Jesus is the logos. It's a Greek word because this thing was written in Greek, and you're probably hearing it in Greek. And there's a lot of talk. If you've been in church for five minutes you've, and heard any sermon on the logos, you've probably heard someone say it's the Greek philosophy of the mind that controls the cosmos, and it absolutely is. But I want to turn this prism a little bit and look at it a little bit differently. John was Jewish. He's writing to a mostly Jewish audience, okay? Logos is a very simple word. It's a very common word in the Greek New Testament, and it means a verbal expression of the mind. It's a message. It's a message. It's like a sermon. There's a whole other word for sermon, but it's like a message. And John says, that was Jesus, okay? The Jeff paraphrase John says right in the beginning that if you take the mind and the heart of God and you wrap it up in flesh and make it a person, that's Jesus. Jesus is the mind and heart of God walking around. Then you also hear in that same area that the mind and heart of God wrapped in human flesh and walking around is also the light of the world. You've heard John the prophet call him the Lamb of God. And what it means is he's the one who takes the sin of the world upon himself and consequently purifies the world through his own sacrifice. You've heard him called rabbi three times in the first three chapters, which means he's a teacher. And you've noticed that John begins his gospel in a very interesting way, in the beginning, which harkens you back to Genesis 1, in the beginning. And you've noticed probably this pattern because you've got a mind like a steel trap that John keeps saying, 
on the next day, on the next day, and then on the third day. It's like Jesus is part and parcel of creation itself. If you're picking up what John's putting down. And there's one more. Jesus is the bridegroom and the son of God. As the bridegroom, he has come to this earth. And as the son of God, he existed before this earth. And he's also God the son as well, son of God. And he has come to institute a marriage between heaven and all the people on earth who would believe in him. So it's also a cause for celebration. Okay, that's a whole lot of... That's a whole lot of abstract language, all right? But if you were a first century Jewish person, you're probably eating it up because you're like, oh my, oh my God, that's God, when you're hearing this stuff about Jesus. John lays all this out in the first three chapters because he wants you as this first century Jewish person to hear the rest of his gospel in light of these things. This guy, Jesus, that he's writing about, that's at the centerpiece of this story, he is the Logos, He is the Lamb of God. He is the purifier of the world. He is the life giver. He is the bridegroom who joins heaven and earth in his very self and being. And he comes to a well and meets a woman. And that's where our Old Testament stuff comes into play here. Okay? So if you know your Old Testament stories, you're like, where is this going to go? Okay, there's probably going to be animals. There's probably going to be a woman. There's probably going to be a marriage. You're coming with all this background information. Now, we're going to read John 4, 1 through 14. I'm hoping this piggybacks pretty well off Pastor Joe's message last week. And we're going to read it in the message, translated by Eugene Peterson. He's one of my faves. He had the heart of a pastor, the hands and feet of a pastor. He pastored his church, and he was also a brilliant scholar. And he translated the Bible all by himself. And he called it the message based upon John 1, the Logos. The Logos is the message. The message is Jesus. And he does what's called a paraphrase translation because he understands when you translate the scriptures, it's about the message. It's about taking it out of Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and putting it in a language people can understand. All right, and if that's not enough for you, it's Bono's favorite translation. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Here's John 1 through 42. And I, I just love the clever moves he makes in his translation. So let's check this out. Jesus realized that the Pharisees were keeping count of the baptisms that he and John performed. Although his disciples, not Jesus, did the actual baptizing, they had posted the score that Jesus was ahead, turning him and John into rivals in the eyes of the people. So Jesus left the Judean countryside and went back to Galilee. To get there, he had to pass through Samaria. He came into Sychar, a Samaritan village that bordered the field Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was still there. If you're that first century Jewish people, things are flying in here. Jesus, worn out by the trip, sat down at the well. It was noon. A woman, a Samaritan, came to draw water. Jesus said, would you give me a drink of water? That sounds familiar too, doesn't it? His disciples had gone to the village to buy food for lunch. The Samaritan woman, taken aback, asked, how come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Jews in those days wouldn't be caught dead talking to Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink, and I would give you fresh living water. That's right. Say that yes and amen. The woman said, sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with, and this well is deep. How are you going to get this living water? Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it? He and his sons and livestock and passed it down to us. 
Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again and again. Anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I give will be an artesian spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. I love the connection to the name of our church here, too. The woman said, sir, give me this water so I won't ever get thirsty, won't ever have to come back to this well again. He said, go call your husband, then come back. I have no husband, she said. That's nicely put, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. You spoke the truth there, sure enough. Oh, so you're a prophet. Well, tell me this. Our ancestors worshipped God at this mountain, but you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship, right? Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father neither here at this mountain nor there in Jerusalem. You worship guessing in the dark. We Jews worship in the clear light of day. God's way of salvation is made available through the Jews, but the time is coming. It has, in fact, come. When you're called will, you're, when you what you're called will not matter, and where you go to worship will not matter. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father's looking out for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. The woman said... I don't know about that. I do know that the Messiah is coming. When he arrives, we'll get the whole story. I am he, said Jesus. You don't have to wait any longer or look any further. Just then, his disciples came back. They were shocked. They couldn't believe he was talking with that kind of a woman. No one said what they were all thinking, but their faces showed it. The woman took the hint and left. In her confusion, she left her water pot. Back in the village, she told the people, Come see a man who knew all about the things I did, who knows me inside and out. Do you think this could be the Messiah? And they went out to see for themselves. In the meantime, the disciples pressed them, Rabbi, eat. Aren't you going to eat? He told them, I have food to eat you know nothing about. The disciples were puzzled. Who could have brought him food? Jesus said, The food that keeps me going is that I do the will of the one who sent me, finishing the work he started. As you look around right now, wouldn't you say that in about four months it will be time to harvest? Well, I'm telling you to open your eyes and take a good look at what's right in front of you. These Samaritan fields are ripe. It's harvest time. The harvester isn't waiting. He's taking his pay, gathering in this grain that's ripe for eternal life. Now the sower is arm in arm with the harvester triumphant. That's the truth of the saying, this one sows, that one harvests. I sent you to harvest a field you never worked without lifting a finger. You have walked in on a field worked long and hard by others. Many of the Samaritans from that village committed themselves to him because of the woman's witness. He knew all about the things I did. He knows me inside and out. They asked him to stay on, so Jesus stayed two days. A lot more people entrusted their lives to him when they heard that he, what he had to say. They said to the woman, we're no longer taking this on your say-so. We've heard it for ourselves, and we know it for sure. He's the savior of the world. Okay. God is God of many, many things, and one of my favorite things he's God of is irony. That's the difference between what we expect is going to happen and what actually happens. And more specifically here, if you're that first century Jewish person, what you expect is going to happen in that well, and then the reality that God actually brings into being. So let's have a look at Jesus compared to those men in the Old Testament. None of those guys in those other well stories were the mind and heart of God walking around in a man. Especially Kerry Cope. 
none of those guys were credited as being part of the very fabric of creation, and none of them were credited as being the very image of God in which they and you and I are made. So you know something's up here if you're this first century Jewish people. You know this wall story is different. And the suspense heightens when Jesus asked the woman the very same question that Abraham's servant asked a woman at a well a few thousand years earlier. Will you give me a drink? And now let's take a look at the Samaritan woman and compare her to some of those women in the Old Testament wells. She's not overly kind like Rebecca was. She's not exuding the kind of character that just screams, I follow the will of God. It doesn't look like she's taking care of the family business like Zipporah and Rachel were. She even takes, takes a, a well, more than one cheap shot at Jesus, but one in particular when she says, our father Jacob, because she's, she's essentially telling him, your culture, Jewish man, your religion, your values are wrong. We are descendants of Jacob, contrary to what you like to say about us way down there in Judah. In fact, the longer we watch this conversation play out, the less heroic this woman seems. And let's not forget that little detail that John gives us. It was noon. Noon kicks off the hottest part of the day. Put yourself in the shoes of a first century person. You wake up and there's no running water. And you don't have much access to clean water. So the first thing you do when you wake up is you go get clean water. Or you go get water and then purify it later, because that's the most important thing. You don't get through the day if you don't have clean water. Everybody goes to the well to get clean water first thing. She waits till noon. She waits till the hottest. If you've heard even half a sermon on this, you know it's because she shunned because of her lifestyle. Jesus could have come to this well in the beginning of the day and talked to lots of Samaritan women, but he didn't. He came at noon when she would be there and when she would be there alone. There are no animals this time. There are no bad guys to drive off. There's no intention to propagate the family line. There's no wedding on the horizon. Except there is a wedding on the horizon. There absolutely is a wedding on the horizon. And that's part of the irony. The Samaritans might not know it, but Jesus has invited them to be part of the wedding between God and his people. This wedding that exists in Jesus the Christ. He's inviting the Samaritans to be part of the bride. And just one little implication of that. If you're that first century Jewish person, your wells have a great deal to do with your heritage and lineage. And if you're a first century Samaritan, now this well has a great deal to do with your spiritual lineage. Remember the wedding parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 22? I mean, who doesn't remember that exact parable from that exact chapter? But Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a king who threw a wedding party for his son, and he invited guests. A king threw a wedding party for his son. That's a pretty big deal. He invited guests. No one came. Yeah, that's ironic. We wouldn't expect that happening. And then he sent his servants to them to give them some more details about it, but they wouldn't come. Eugene Peterson says they just shrugged it off. He doesn't use the word meh, but we can use meh if we want to because that's what they were like. They just shrugged it off. So then the king sent out his servants a third time, but not to those people. He sent them out to just go into town and invite everyone they saw. 
The point of the story is that the people who accept God's invitation are often not the ones you might think would accept it. It's a bit ironic. And the ones you would assume would just shrug it off, well, they're the ones who actually do accept it. There's some more irony. And the Samaritans are the ones that you would assume would shrug off God's invitation, but they're the ones who have listened to Jesus and accept it. And speaking of weddings, remember John's or Jesus' first miracle in John, it's turning to water, water into wine at a wedding because there's much, there's much larger implications there. Jesus' presence in the world marks the beginning of a much different kind of wedding than that physical one he's at and preparations for his bride. And what better fitting than to have the good wine, as the mater d' calls it, the good wine to celebrate the wedding. At this well in Samaria, Jesus is officially inviting the Samaritans to the celebration. So in chapter 4, the Samaritans hosted him and his disciples for two days, and that's crazy generous hospitality, period, especially between Samaritans and Jews. As we know, things were a bit angsty, but did they know, it's a genuine question, did they know the larger implications that they were being invited into personal relationship with God through the Son of God? Autumn touched on this in her, in her communion sermon, and I want to just take the opportunity. One of the most impactful, maybe the most impactful things anyone's ever said to me about Christianity is, is this. Now, the first part of this might strike you like sandpaper, but hear me out, okay? She said, if you think Jesus came just to die for your sins, then you have a very narrow concept of who Jesus is. He came to bring you into the life that he shares with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, just, I encourage you to just let that marinate for the rest of your life and everything that that means. Okay, there's one last piece of this picture. Old Testament wells, New Testament wells, the wedding. And we're going to go to Narnia here. This, this is the end of the sermon before the table talk. Um, I'm going to read you part of the story, a part that contains a lot of sadness, celebration, and ferocity. It's a portrait of the king himself, the king who rules the kingdom. I'm going to read to you for a few minutes. If you're not familiar with, with the Narnia books, this was a Christmas present from my mom several years ago. As you can see, it's been very well loved. Uh, so for those who don't know the story, these are uh, C.S. Lewis's allegory for God, the kingdom of God, for Jesus, um, the as Aslan is Jesus, the stone table we're going to read about in here is the law. The deep magic is also the law. Um, the witch you're going to see is Satan. The children are just innocent kids who love Aslan, and there's something that I think we as disciples of Jesus can strive to be like. And there's also a bit of irony here, because this is C.S. Lewis's allegory of Jesus trading his life for a traitor. And I don't know about you, I'm pretty sure you were once that traitor. I know I was once that traitor. And this is his very beautiful portrait he paints of Aslan sacrificing himself for the traitor. A great crowd of people were standing all around the stone table where the law is etched. And though the moon was shining, many of them carried torches, which burned with evil-looking red flames and black smoke. <clears throat> but such people, ogres with monstrous teeth, 
and wolves, bullheaded men, spirits of evil trees and poisonous plants, and other creatures whom I won't describe because if I did, the grown-ups would probably not let you read this book. And right in the middle, standing by the table, was the witch herself. A howl and a gibber of dismay went up from the creatures when they first saw the great lion pacing towards them. And for a moment, even the witch seemed to be struck with fear. Then she recovered herself and gave a wild, fierce laugh. The fool, she cried, the fool has come, bind him fast. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies, but it never came. Four hags, grinning and leering, yet also, at first, hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. They rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though, had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise. Even when the enemies, straining and tugging, pulled the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh, then they began to drag him towards the stone table. Stop, said the witch. Let him first be shaved. Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down by Aslan's head. Snip, snip, snip went the shears and masses of curling gold began to fall to the ground. <clears throat> then the ogre stood back and the children, watching from their hiding place, could see the face of Aslan looking all small and different without its mane. The enemies also saw the difference. <clears throat> Excuse me. Why, he's only a great cat after all, cried one. Is that what we were afraid of, said another. And they surged round Aslan, jeering at him. Oh, how can they, said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks. The brutes, the brutes. For now that the first shock was over, the shorn face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. At last, the witch drew near. She stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion, but his looked up at the sky, still quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. And then, just before she gave the blow, she stooped down, and she said in a quivering voice, And now who has won, fool? Did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him as our pact, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. The children did not see the actual moment of the killing. They couldn't bear to look, and it covered their eyes. As soon as the wood was silent again, Susan and Lucy crept out onto the open hilltop. The moon was getting low and thin clouds were passing across her, but still they could see the shape of the lion lying dead in his bonds. And down they both knelt in the wet grass and kissed his cold face and stroked his beautiful fur, what was left of it, and cried till they could cry no more. And then they looked at each other and held each other's hands for mere loneliness and cried again, and then again were silent. They walked to the eastern edge of the hill and looked down. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Oh, 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 cried the two girls, rushing back to the table. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. 
They looked round, there shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much as frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. You're not, not a, and asked Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look at it? He said. Oh, you're real, you're real. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy. And both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. Oh, children, said the lion, I feel my strength coming back to me. Oh, children, catch me if you can. He stood for a second, his eyes very bright, his limbs quivering, lashing himself with his tail. Then he made a leap high over their heads and landed on the other side of the table, laughing, though she didn't know why. Lucy scrambled over to reach him. Aslan leapt up again. A mad chase began. Round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of their reach, now letting them almost catch his tail, now diving between them, now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautifully velveted paws and catching them again, and now stopping unexpectedly so that all three of them rolled over together in a happy lapping heap of fur and arms and legs. It was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia. And whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. And the funny thing was that when all three finally lay together panting in the sun, the girls no longer felt in the least tired or hungry or thirsty. And now, said Aslan presently, to business, I feel I'm going to roar. You had better put your fingers in your ears. And they did. And Aslan stood up, and when he opened his mouth to roar, his face became so terrible that they did not dare to look at it. And they saw all the trees in front of him bend before the blast of his roaring as grass bends in a meadow before the wind. And now it's on to the table talk. I hope, I hope that in these last few minutes you've seen something old in a new light, or you've seen something new that you never saw before. The table talk has two options. Option one, we'll go back to the well in Samaria. Where did Jesus first meet you? Or if you've always known him, what's the earliest meeting that you can remember? Describe it to the group. Option one, where did he first meet you? Or if you've always known him, what's the first meeting you remember distinctly? Option two, have you ever had a time like that time in Narnia just now when you played with Jesus and you were like, is it a thunderstorm? Is it a kitten? I just don't know. Is it both? Yes, yes, yes. That's your table talk. <laughs>